Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie, and today I'm joined by Dave Min, Democratic candidate for the United States House of Representatives in California's 45th Congressional District. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. Yeah, absolutely. So you've been very involved in politics for a while now. Could you tell us about your journey and what pushed you to finally run for elected office? Sure. And so I guess I'd say I've been involved in policy, which is a little bit different than the political side of things. Uh, I've spent most of my career in public service. So uh, after graduating from Harvard Law School in 2002, I was kind of facing a decision over uh, whether I should go to Wall Street and particularly uh, Goldman Sachs, which everyone was telling me I should do back then, or go to the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, which is ultimately what I ended up doing. And uh, that was a harder decision than you might think because it was a different era. Uh, it was back at a time when I think going to banks was almost seen as a virtuous thing. And, and of course, the paycheck would have been a lot bigger. But uh, I ended up going with my heart and with my gut. And, and that was in public service. And for me, that really began a career in public service. So I started my career at the SEC. We had, between the time I accepted and the time I started, we had a, a little accounting scandal around Enron. Uh, along with WorldCom. And so that kind of changed the, the nature of the job. Uh, I think highlighted the importance of, of having a good public policy and of having, you know, s- some role for government in our markets, which at the time was something that was increasingly under attack. Uh, went on from there and I, I worked for Senator Schumer as a senior policy advisor focusing on uh, housing, banking, and economics. Uh, went on to continue that role uh, with a, a think tank called the Center for American Progress, uh, where I was a senior policy director for them for a few years, and then uh, came out here to UC Irvine about six years back. Uh, and uh, my research is in similar areas, uh, housing, banking, economics, a little bit of corporate governance work thrown in now as well. But I've been teaching for the last six years out here and, and can tell you, I, I saw a little bit of the political side, but I consider myself firmly a policy nerd, and the idea that I'd ever run for office was probably the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, and in fact, I have three very young children. My youngest is two years old that kind of, I think, uh, are pretty clear evidence of, of where I thought my life was going, which was, was not running for office. You worked in Congress during a time of incredible dysfunction. What drove you to run for office having witnessed that firsthand? So, you know, I saw a little bit of both sides because I was in Congress from 07 to 09. And uh, what I saw was, of course, we were in the minority back in 2007. And then when uh, Barack Obama became president, uh, we briefly had the majority. Now, I left right uh, around the time that Obama came in to go to the Center for American Progress. In In my role at CAP, I did see you know, a little bit of what it was like to have uh, democratic control of Congress and the presidency. And that, by the way, is in marked contrast to what we're seeing right now, where, uh, you know, repeatedly President Obama and the Democratic leadership in the House and Senate uh, did really try to reach across the aisle, uh, and arguably perhaps too much so. Um, you know, I think a lot of people complained about the, the structure and design of, of big picture bill, big signature bills like uh, Obamacare or the ACA, as well as uh, Dodd-Frank. And, and, you know, I think that a lot of progressives would have liked to see those be a little bit more uh, robust. But I think to the extent they were uh, a little bit more, quote unquote, centrist, that was a, a deliberate attempt to try to appeal to Republicans. Unfortunately, I think what we saw back then was uh, our beginnings of what we're seeing today, which is uh, that dysfunction you're talking about, where I think Republicans uh, largely refused to work with the other side, despite Democratic best efforts to try to reach across the aisle. And of course, they're going to have their own version of that. But that, that was, from my perspective, what we saw. And of course, now we see complete dysfunction. We see uh, an administration that is ramming legislation 
abusing the process and passing stuff that is, frankly, I think, unpopular against the interests of constituents. And uh, speaking only for the area I'm in, which is California's 45th district, it's a district where many people are coming to the conclusion that our representative, Mimi Walters, uh, is voting repeatedly against our best interests uh, in, in ways that are consistent only with the interests of sort of the National Republican Party. I've spent my life thinking about policy and not politics. But there's a time to step up and take action. And as much as I'm an advocate for good public policy, uh, at this point in time, you know, we need to take political power back. What we're seeing, I think, is a crisis. From my perspective, we're seeing an assault on what I view as our core American values of uh, guaranteeing opportunity, uh, some semblance of equality, fair treatment for all, democracy, these are the types of values that I think are under attack right now, and they're the values that really drew people like my parents to this country. I was born here as the son of Korean immigrants. They came over here in 1972 to study, and you know, as a father of three young kids myself, I think a lot about their decision to come here, to stay here, uh, to, to settle down and plant roots here, and decide that not only will they spend the rest of their lives here uh, in a country that is very, very far from home, it, with a culture that is unfamiliar to them, uh, with a language that there's, they were still learning at the time. You know, just thinking about that from my perspective, uh, that's a huge investment to say, I'm going to go to this country halfway across the world and plant roots there. That's where my future is going to be. Uh, and that's an enormous investment in America. And, of course, that's the story of America, uh, not just my parents, but we all share some story like that in our family tree. Uh, I think that's what makes America great, and we're getting away from that. We're getting away from the welcoming inclusive opportunity that America has always offered to all. Uh, I think Donald Trump's presidency is really, again, a direct assault on those values. Uh, and that's a big part of why I'm running. I, I want my children to grow up in an America that represents the best values that America has always stood for. As you mentioned, the incumbent Republican in your district, Mimi Walters, isn't doing a great job of representing your district Though the 45th went to Hillary Clinton, Walters votes in line with Trump 96% of the time, but that doesn't mean it'll be easy to defeat her. If I'm not mistaken, your district has always been held by a Republican, right? That's absolutely correct. And uh, Hillary won Orange County, and I, I believe what would be the 45th district today has always gone for Republicans uh, since 1936. So I think 1936 was the last time before Hillary that a Democrat had won in Orange County. It's kind of a remarkable uh, feat, if you will. And so uh, a lot of your listeners may be too young to know sort of that, that we used to call this the Orange Curtain down here. When you went from Los Angeles to Orange County, uh, they called it the Orange Curtain because it was uh, just like a, a sharp dividing line between the cultures and the political sensibilities of, of people uh, in Orange County as opposed to the rest of Southern California. And so this was long rock-ribbed Republican. Uh, Reagan came from not too far from here. A lot of conservative talk radio came out of here. And we've never had a Democratic representative in this district. Now, Hillary Clinton won by five and a half percent. I think that's what's getting people excited about this district. It happened for a couple reasons. First is that we have changing demographics down here. The area is getting younger. It's getting more diverse. Uh, it's getting more educated. So if you think about my area, it's Irvine uh, up to just south of Anaheim and out east of uh, to Laguna Hills. It's kind of the heart of Orange County. And what I tell people is people pay $800,000 or more for a home out here that does not have proximity to the beach. So what they're paying for in my district is basically suburban niceties, uh, good public schools, some of the best in the state, 
uh, some of the safest neighborhoods in the country, an abundance of public parks, and lots of strip malls. So it's uh, the people that have been coming in tend to be younger families. We have a lot of diversity. So right now, I think uh, we have one of the highest rates of education in the country. 56% of people here have a bachelor's degree. Uh, it's a fairly diverse uh, district with a 26% Asian population, 18% Latino population, uh, and, and a pretty significant Middle Eastern population as well. While many of those voters that I'm mentioning are, are still Republican-leaning, they're not your Trump Republicans. Uh, and I think, in particular, the message and values that the Trump brand of Republicanism kind of is seen as standing for are ones that I think a lot of Republicans here may find antithetical to their sort of core values. And so that's part of what's changing. Uh, at the same time, you also have a lot of, uh, you know, even, even among sort of the more traditional Republicans, I'd say that a lot more of them are like Romney Republicans as opposed to Trump Republicans. And so Mitt Romney uh, won here in a landslide in 2012, uh, but Hillary, as you mentioned, won by 5.4% in 2016. So uh, I think with the, the right candidate uh, and the right message, and potentially if, if our representative Mimi Walters keeps voting against the interests of our district, I think there's uh, definitely the, the ingredients here for an upset. I think this is uh, an absolute must win if we want to take back Congress. And uh, we're running as, as if our lives depended on it because I think in a lot of ways they do. I'm deathly afraid of what happens if we don't win this seat, we don't take back Congress, and Donald Trump continues unchecked for another two plus years. So as you said, your district is diversifying. And of course, that's happening throughout the country. But it's not quite something that the Democratic Party, which tries to embrace diversity, has caught up to. Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 didn't do a particularly good job of reaching out to people of color, which is one reason why there was lower turnout for people of color. And I was wondering, how does this diversification and your understanding of it affect your approach to campaigning? Well, you know, it, it brings some challenges in that we're talking about, you know, disparate groups of voters. Um, and, and, you know, nobody likes to be pandered to, right? So whether you're you are Asian American or African American or LGBTQ or, you know, any other type of sort of quote unquote minority. I think there's a danger that, and I've seen this myself, that politicians feel like they're often pandering to different interest groups, right? And we don't want to be that campaign. I, I think a big part of this from my perspective is just trying to reach out to people and listen to them as much as talking to them. There are too many politicians that go into communities of, of color or minority communities and talk at people. And they don't listen enough to the concerns. And I think it starts, you know, if you want to reflect the concerns of your constituents, I think you have to start by listening to them. Now, in my case, uh, you know, we've been getting out there in a bunch of different communities, uh, seniors, uh, college students, uh, high school students, for that matter, Asian Americans, uh, Hispanics, uh, LGBTQ, um, you know, seniors, as I mentioned. So we're getting all there. We also have to actually hit out to the Republicans. I think it's important for a cam candidate in my district to reach out to Republicans, even if I'm not going to agree with them at the end of the day, uh, at least to try to be there and, and understand and, and to have them see that I'm trying my best to represent them and their concerns. And I'll tell you something. I actually think most people in my district share a lot of the same concerns. We want community that's fair, a community that offers opportunity to the younger generations, economic opportunities, social justice. Uh, we want clean air. We want basically all the same things in life. And that's true whether you're Republican or Democrat or an independent or green. And so uh, I think the, the divides come over how we get there, right? That That's where ideology comes into play. And uh, I'm not sure we'll always be able to solve those differences, but I think getting out there and listening to different communities is important. 
You're, of course, running as a policy nerd, which I think is very much what we need in Congress right now. Could you tell us about your top legislative priorities and how your policy wonkiness would affect your approach to legislating? Sure. Great question. Uh, thank you so much, Jordan. So here's what I say. Um, I come from, as I mentioned, a housing banking economics background. But those are actually not going to be my core issues. They're not why I'm running. They're not what's motivating me. I'm running because I really do care about the future we're leaving behind for younger generations. My kids, you have kids, your kids, uh, you know, but just younger generations. How do we create a better America and a better world? Because we're kind of abandoning our duty that, that parents and sort of older people have always had of paying it forward. And I want to get back to that. So uh, what I talk about a lot and my top legislative priorities uh, are really around sort of thinking long term again and investing in long term priorities. So I call this my dad agenda. It could be a parent agenda or a mom agenda. But let's start, you know, investing in those types of long term priorities that we know produce value for future generations. Education, climate change, uh, investing in our infrastructure, which we haven't really done in a serious way since the 1930s or 1950s. Thinking about the infrastructure of the future. Why is it that the United States uh, has such sporadic Wi-Fi? Uh, we don't have public Wi-Fi in our big cities like other countries do. Uh, we need to start thinking about what it means to have infrastructure for the 21st century as well. Scientific research, uh, you name it. But those types of long-term priorities uh, and, and thinking about investing for the future is really going to be my top legislative priority. Uh, and so that covers a number of issues, obviously. But, but I think it's really about reorienting how we spend our scarce tax dollars, uh, not just shoveling them away to billionaires and foreign investors, as the Republican Party is trying to do today, but thinking about being long-term and strategic. And uh, having come from a, a sort of a banking and economics background, I will tell you, one of the problems with Wall Street uh, that a lot of scholars are studying is that Wall Street thinks too short-term. And this is a problem that even, even the sort of banking economists have recognized, the economists at places like Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs. Uh, we call this the problem of short-termism, where they're thinking quarter to quarter, and that may not necessarily be in the long-term franchise value of, of a particular company. Well, I think we have a problem of short-termism in public policy where our policymakers are really just thinking about uh, the next year or the next quarter. And this tax bill is a perfect example of that where people, the Republican Party right now slam this thing through. They don't have any idea what it's going to do to our economy or our country in the next five to ten years. All they know is that it's going to shovel a bunch of money to, to their donor base. And, and that's exactly the type of thinking we need to get away from. Uh, at the same time, I realize there's a lot of other issues. And so you, I think part of your question is what kind of attitude will I bring to po policymaking? You know, I'm very much a believer, having been a, being and having been a policy nerd myself, that we need to defer to the expertise of people who study issues. To get open heart surgery, I wouldn't trust some random person who is a talk radio show host to do that for me. Uh, you know, I'd want to get a, a someone who is a, a specialist. Uh, I think it's the same when we're talking about, say, environmental protection or women's issues or uh, health care, any number of other issues, uh, for national security. Uh, we ought to be deferring more and more to expertise. We ought to be deferring to empirical data. Uh, and, and that would be the approach I really want to take is, is show me why this works. Uh, if you can show me that, uh, then I'll support it. Something we haven't seen much or really any wonkiness about is social justice. We hear candidates say they support marginalized communities, but they don't tend to have any specific proposals beyond, say, opposing discrimination. How do you hope to help LGBTQ folks, people of color, disabled people, Muslims, and other marginalized Americans? I mean, first, we, of course, obviously, every Democrat and probably everyone running against the Republican incumbent right now is going to say the same thing. We have to stop Trump. 
We have to turn things around. Uh, what we're seeing right now is a, a legislative and policy assault on the rights of marginalized Americans, as you put it. I was uh, one of two Asian kids growing up in my uh, elementary school. And so, like, I was always the shortest kid in my class. I know what it's like to be bullied. And what we have right now in the White House is a bully. What we have as the ethos of the Republican Party right now, at least in Congress, is a bully's ethos. And we have to stop that. We have to stand up to the bullies that are trying to divide us based on small differences. And we need to stand up together. And I think we are seeing a lot of that happen. We have to keep going forward all the way to 2018. As far as the next steps, you know, it depends on the group, of course. Uh, there are legislative proposals we can do. We ought to make sure, you know, that case of LGBTQ households that uh, we in, in grant them the same rights, that we reverse some of the things, for example, that Trump is trying to do right now uh, with uh, disallowing the data collection of, of uh, around trans communities, I believe. I think that's one of the steps that they're taking right now is to stop the collection of data related to trans people. Uh, we need to stop things like that. Uh, we need to start collecting more data. We need to start thinking about uh, in a very informed way how we can uh, improve the policy priorities that we ought to be having, which is, again, a fair opportunity for all there's a, there's a litany of things we could probably spend hours talking about. Yes, I'd say at sort of a, a high level, I'm open to hearing ideas and proposals. I do think at the end of the day, there's a limit to how much the law can do. There's certainly a lot that the law can do. But some of this is going to be cultural, right? We need to make sure that culture changes. And, and that means changing the conversation. First of all, we have to stop what Donald Trump's doing. Donald Trump is, is taking the conversation in places that are very frightening uh, and again, he's a bully. But I think we have to start talking about sort of how fairness and, and how everybody, uh, what, what are our principles of being American? Uh, and I think a lot of this is, is again, boils down to what the, the founders said, right? That, that we believe in the idea of the American dream, that we should all be granted the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that that's uh, sort of a guiding ethos that I would sort of say is one aspect of what it means to be American. Uh, how do we make sure that everyone has access to that? Because certainly many, many people do not feel that America treats them that way. And so how do we get that? And I think that involves having conversation. That may mean, on some level, holding congressional hearings. But I also think that means uh, using politics as a bully pulpit to try to change that conversation. Right. Do the opposite of Donald Trump. Try to use our public presence to, to have a productive conversation. So that's part of what I'd say. And I guess I point to the Me Too movement right now as, as a pretty cogent example of the type of dialogue I'm talking about, which is, you know, nobody could have predicted that this would have come out. I, 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 this came really out of nowhere. And it's really changed the discourse in our country. And it's, you know, rocked uh, the C-suites at big corporations. It's rocked Hollywood. It's rock politics. And I think that that is a, a great thing that is really changing the conversation and illustrating, you know, the importance of treating all people fairly. Immigration is obviously a very personal issue for you, as it is for a lot of Americans. And though we've seen overwhelming support for the DREAM Act, there's still a lot of ground that isn't being covered. We still need to help undocumented folks who don't have a spotless record, who wouldn't qualify for DACA or DAPA. We still need to demilitarize the border. The list goes on. How do you hope, especially as a policy wonk, to comprehensively address immigration in Congress? Well, you only ask the easy questions, huh? 
Look, I mean, I think it's a complicated set of issues. I think we need to start by uh, asking what is the purpose of immigration policy uh, and what do we want to do with the enforcement aspects in particular, right? So a lot of what has changed. So uh, Congress sets the immigration policies, right? And then the president sets the enforcement priorities. And so President Obama's decision to, you know, uh, allow uh, a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers was an executive action because Congress didn't act in providing them a pathway to citizenship. What he, President Obama did uh, by executive order was to declare that as the executive head of the executive branch, that we would not be deporting people uh, who fell into that dreamer category. Now, as you point out, that that may be overly narrow, that we there are lots of other people that have a compelling case for staying here. I think, by the way, there's a huge misunderstanding in this country, maybe not among your listeners, but I think among a lot of the country, around what it means to be undocumented. There are people that come over here and stay over their visas a few months. They're undocumented. There are people that come across the border, you know, uh, and, you know, that's kind of what a lot of people think of as the only type of undocumented. Uh, there are people that come over here for all sorts of reasons, student visas or otherwise, that maybe overstay or their visa expires or somehow they're here without a proper set of documentation. And they come in all different forms from all different countries and in all different income classes, right? And it seems as if President Trump's priorities are to go after the people that are easiest to grab, that happen to be brown, and that happen to be poorer, right? So there are a lot of rich white people here without documentation. Doesn't seem like that's a priority right now of President Trump's. And by the way, there's a lot of Asian Americans that are here without documentation. That's a part I think that gets missing from this this story is I think something like one in 10 of the dreamers are actually Asian American. uh, And I think that number is higher here in my district. So uh, it's a pressing concern. As you point out, there's a lot of different aspects of this issue. But I think at the end of the day, we need to figure out at a legislative level, uh, what do we want our immigration priorities to be? Uh, should we be um, increasing, for example, the number H-1B? Should we be providing other pathways to citizenship and proper documentation for people coming into this country? Uh, at the executive level, I think there needs to be a better debate over, you know, what we should be prioritizing as far as enforcement and non-enforcement. Uh, I'll tell you one of the obvious byproducts of what Trump is doing right now is that by sending ICE agents into places like hospitals and courthouses and police stations, that means that people here without proper documentation are scared to go to hospitals police stations and uh, courthouses. And that means they're scared of the authorities that the rest of us take for granted. It's creating a shadow economy, a shadow society. And and I think that's dangerous. And it's counterproductive to everything we want in this country, not just for people without documentation, but if we're talking about crime, if we're talking about economy, we're talking about tax payment, people paying taxes, it's counterproductive on all those things. Uh, Like a lot of what Trump's doing, I think it's not well thought out doesn't make any sense, and at the same time is completely unfair and immoral. So you mentioned the massive racial disparities and racial targeting in terms of immigration, and I think this is a problem across essentially every field and aspect of American society, including running for office. We have a very predominantly white male Congress at the moment. We've seen recently in Virginia and across the country a lot of diverse candidates won, but they also suffered some really vicious and disgusting attacks on their identity by their Republican opponents. And I'm wondering how you think folks, especially millennials, hoping to run for office that are worried about their identity being attacked should approach this. I think when you're running for office, I'll speak only for myself. I think as a minority, you have to be careful because, you know, even if you face those attacks, we have to rise above it. 
if I'm seen as quote unquote playing the race card, it, it becomes used against me. And I think anyone who is in a minority category understands this point that uh, we have to, particularly if I'm trying to win votes, appeal to the majority. And that means I have to appeal to their sensibilities, even if I don't always agree with them, even if my life experience is different. I think that's often the frustrating part about being a politician, uh, particularly a minority politician, is we have to have thicker skin, right? And sure, yes, those attacks in in uh, New Jersey against uh, South Asians and East Asians, the, the attacks against Danica Rome were disgusting. Uh, I think those candidates responded well to them. They were classy. They held their heads high. Uh, certainly, they raised attention to the type of campaign that was being run against them. But I think we have to, you know, as Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we have to go high. And I think that's particularly true of minorities uh, in any category because uh, because of the additional scrutiny that we face. Now, this is my most important question. You seem very enthusiastic about dad jokes. Your website has a dad joke generator <laughs> on the home page. Could you tell us your favorite dad joke? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. Well, <laughs> so mine are usually off the cuff, but the one my wife told to me uh, on our first date, and she's going to hate me for saying this, is uh, why can't children see pirate movies? Uh, I, I don't know. Because they're rated R. Uh well, that is certainly a dad joke. Yes, it is. Yes. No applause. Just throw money, please. Okay. Speaking of throwing money, how can folks get involved in your family? Oh, thank you. Very, that is fantastic. So, so thank you so much. If you're in district, we need your help. If you're around our area, we would love your help. We, we, we want more door knockers. We want to get out there as much as possible and help people out. If you're not in our district and you have some money to give, even if it's like a dollar, DaveMin.com, D-A-V-E-M-I-N.com, because we're running, obviously, a campaign that we need to compete with someone who's going to be taking uh, basically all of her money from corporate uh, special interest. At this point, uh, we, I'm happy to report we've raised the most in individual contributions of any campaign in this district. We've taken no money from corporate PACs, and we will not. Uh, and then if, if people don't have money uh, or want to help otherwise, just getting our word out. Follow me on Twitter, DaveMinCA. Uh, on Facebook, Dave Min for Congress, and just keep uh, our profile up. That's what we need right now. So those are the types of steps we need. But we are trying to create a grassroots revolution. DaveMin.com, again, D-A-V-E-M-I-N.com. And uh, they can either sign up to volunteer, to donate money, uh, or to just get on our list so that uh, they can start following our campaign. But uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, okay, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's great to see a fellow Korean American running for Congress. And I think your candidacy is very inspiring and exciting for a lot of folks. Thank you so much, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time and for the for the hosting me on your lovely podcast. Yeah, of course. Again, this is Dave Min, Democratic candidate for California's 45th. And I'm Jordan Valerie, editor in chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.